When you begin to think of the Bible stories in terms of displaced people, it's amazing how many are about just that. Abraham was told by God to to leave his homeland and go to another land that God would show him. Moses was what we would today call an unaccompanied minor, (laughs) put in a basket (laughs) down the river because otherwise he would have been killed in a genocide of the baby Jewish boys. The people of Israel left Egypt because they were in real danger of an ethnic cleansing. And Elijah was faced, facing execution by a hostile ruler. So, so God sent him out to find hospitality from a widow who had nothing to give, and yet God provided. And then, of course, Jesus himself was a refugee, fleeing Bethlehem after he was born and going to Egypt. As I've been preparing for this morning and watching the news and reading my text, it's hard to miss all of these overlaps in these old stories that so many of us have known our whole lives and what is happening in our world today. And many have said that how we respond to displaced people in our world and how we respond to particularly the refugees is really a test of this time in our history and a test of us as a human race and then for us as people of faith, of how, what our faith calls us to do. The Bible has a very clear message that Maria wrote, read in Deuteronomy, that including the stranger and providing for them, seeing our own face reflected in their face, is deeply faithful and is what God calls us to do. The beginning of that love, the beginning of that compassion that God calls Israel over and over to in the scripture really is, as as the text said, to remember that you also were a sojourner. You also were a stranger. And maybe you don't have that experience immediately, as I don't in my own life, but it doesn't take me too many generations to go back and remember how my great-grandparents came over to this country as strangers and sojourners. And so within each of our stories, there is a story of the stranger in some way. And in that, we find, we find and look at the this, this faces of other strangers and see our own face reflected. It was months ago that Anita uh, put me in contact with Maria, and we um, started connecting with Maria to look for a Sunday to, to come. And um, we chose this text for today months and months ago. Um, so it's, it's interesting that it has such a, a pertinent um, relevance to where we're at right now. And yet I think it's appropriate for all of us as we're watching the news and trying to sort through all of the information that we have to, to take a break from the news cycle and to just listen to a story and listen to um, how one person is seeing her face reflected 
in the face of a stranger and the way that that is uh, transforming um, lives. So I'd like to invite Maria Tran to come up, and we're so honored to have you here. Um, and is the everything okay there? My password is needed on the laptop. Just a moment. <laughs> Thank you. Tell us your story and um, how you got to where you're at today. Um, Chris, do you mind forwarding to the next slide? There we go. Actually, just the next one. The Following. next one after that. How many of you remember seeing this horrific photo of Elon Curdy, September 2nd of 2015? pretty much every single person here. At that time, I was working just down the road here at Facebook as a product manager. And when you work at Facebook, you get to look at Facebook all the time. <laughs> and that photo flashed up on my newsfeed, and it stopped me on my tracks. I couldn't breathe after seeing that photo. Because as horrific as it is, and that little boy can represent any little boy, for me it was a very personal story. Because I was also three when my parents had to make the very difficult decision to flee ethnic persecution. We were ethnic Chinese and we were living in Vietnam. So they sold everything that they had, left the family that they knew, and put me on a boat with them to escape. Chris, next slide. So when I looked at Elon Curdy's photo, I, I saw myself when I was three. These pictures were taken in 1979 when I was at a refugee camp. And I'm only here today because people rescued us, and I was a lucky one. So when I looked at that photo, it was, for me, a call to action. I knew then that I had to do something to figure out what was going on and to help. And so what was the next steps for you after that? Um, I started talking to my husband and to the friends around me, sharing them, trying to really process what was going on and trying to figure out a game plan for myself and what I wanted to do. And I knew then that while there were so many stories, newspaper stories that summer about the refugee crisis, Nobody had told the stories of the real people, of the families, and nobody was able to humanize that story so that it can connect to all of us on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So I knew that I had to go there. I knew I had to learn about the stories of the people who are fleeing now to figure out what they're doing and how to humanize and tell their story. Because I feel like in order for the world to respond, in order for us all to care, we all need to know what was behind the real story and not what was just on the newspaper clippings. And so I was lucky enough that through a friend of a friend, I was able to connect with um, a Syrian American, um, somebody who used to work at Facebook as well, and he was gonna go and tell the story. And so I tagged along with him, and in two weeks after I saw that photo, I had booked a ticket to fly there with him. And so I ended up in Turkey and in Greece and ended up in the front lines 
helping during the times when there were thousands of people, thousands, three, over 3,000 people on average arrived on the shores of Greece every single day during October of 2015. Wow. And I think for me, like it was so in the news in yeah. 2015 and months after that, but, but it's, we've kind of lost some of the front page um, story of that in terms of what's happening um, in the Middle East. Can you give us an update? And yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what was happening then, and I'll give you an update on what's Great. going on now. Chris, if you can fast forward one extra slide. So I ended up in an island called Lesbos, and within 15 minutes of me getting on the beach right there, this boat came in. And that was the first of 200 boats that arrived that day. And it was overwhelming. Nothing that I had prepared for was able to prepare me for what I saw. And the sea of humanity, the, the children in need, um, the foil-wrapped children, the mylar-wrapped children, th those are the kids that are coming in. And the children and the women are put often in the center of these boats where people think it's safer, but that's where the water comes in. And so a lot of these children actually get submerged in cold water um, this was October, it actually gets super cold there. And so we would get these kids and these women who are trampled in the middle of this boat with hypothermia. And I was at a loss, um, you know, just responding and doing what we had to do to respond to these kids. But taking things in, it, it was just incredible. Nothing in my life had prepared me for what I was seeing. And what I was seeing was that there were just normal people like me who saw the news and who showed up because we felt like we needed to do something. There were no large organizations there to help. There was no Red Cross, there was no you know, UN response to this. And, and that was just incredible. It was just regular, everyday people like myself who showed up. Um, and so that was 2015. And during that summer, and especially in October, that's when a lot of the news people arrived, and that's when, if you go back and look at the news, you see a lot of the photos and stuff. And since then, there's not been a lot of coverage on that. And yet, there are still large numbers of people coming. On the Greek islands that border Turkey, right now, there's still 17,000 people trapped. They're not allowed to travel. Um, there have been thousands of people who are newly arrived, and these people are still living in horrid conditions in large camps that weren't meant to house people. They're still living in tents through winters, and they're still living through, um, you know, just on, on dirt pallets and, and shipping pallets. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just a horrible, horrible mm -hmm. situation, even to this day. Mm -hmm. So tell us just how Sea of Solidarity, Solidarity developed in, in response. Um, so I really didn't have a game plan when I went over there. It was really, let me go over there, let me see what's going on, let me help tell the story, let me get out of this, you know, to try to tell my own story, to learn more about what would have gone on with my parents. Um, I didn't go there thinking that I was gonna start a charity or do anything Brand. Um, but because of what I saw and because it was just grassroots people, everyday people out there helping, um, 
I did the first thing I knew how to do. I reported the situation and I went on Facebook and tell people like, listen, I'm at this beach. There are thousands of people arriving and there's this guy named Ryan. He's 25 years old. He got Malaysian Airlines to give him a ticket to fly there so that he can be there. And he's serving tea and he ran out of fuel, cooking fuel. And when I asked him, like, Ryan, how do you fund this? Like, thousands of people are coming. He whipped out a Ziploc bag, and he showed me really proudly the 180 euros that he had that people were coming to the beach and giving to him. And I looked at him, I'm like, are you kidding? 180 euros out of a Ziploc bag. <laughs> and so I reported all this on Facebook, and I did a call out for help. And that night I went to sleep and, you know, I got up the next morning between Medj and I posting about it, we raised over $3,000. We were able to pay for gas for the next month. We were able to go with our rental cars up to the closest grocery shop, you know, it's like one of those little town shops. And we filled out three cars worth of groceries. And we were able to talk to a vendor that provided fruit and established that they would come and do, you know, deliver fresh oranges every single day for the next month. And I had to come back at the end of the two week period and I realized that while I can't be there to help, the best thing that I can do is really tell their stories and tell about the situation and be able to raise money for the grassroots projects that are going on. And little did I know when I did that, when I did the Facebook post that two and a half years later that I'm still here and that we're still doing that work and that Sea of Solidarity is the charity that we've had to set up to make this work happen. Mm. It's so powerful to hear how you saw your face reflected in their face. And what, do you have other stories of, of people that you're encountering now and the stories that are being told there now? Yeah, absolutely. I'll share with you some stories of um, some of the people that I've met and, and talk to you a little bit about how their stories connect with myself and then also connect with all of us on a broader level. Um, Chris, can you fast forward the slides? Quite a bit, yeah. More? More. Okay, so um, I want to share with you three stories about people that I've met that help me understand the crisis a little bit more and help me understand my own family story a little bit more. So these are four guys, Monir, Mahmoud, Wisnam, and Mohammed. I met them in Finland and they were super happy when I met them because it was their first day and they had traveled all the way from Syria and they've made it to Finland and they were applying for asylum. And so these were the first guys that I've met and they really fit the profile of what at the time people were talking about, which was fighting age Syrian men coming to Europe in waves. And so I hung out with these guys a little bit and I talked to them and I asked them like, why are you here? Um, why are you fleeing your country? These guys all came without their parents and without their families. They were all university students and they had met each other along the way. And every single one of them and all the subsequent young Syrian men that I've met afterward told me the exact same story. They fled Syria because if they didn't flee, the government would force them to fight. And so the government was basically instituting what we would call draft, but in their case, 
the government armies would come into towns and grab young men who aren't married, who didn't have children, and force them to fight. They had no choice. And so that explains a lot of what we were seeing and what newspaper articles were saying at the time, that fighting age men were coming over. And I thought that that story was really, really important to share. Um, next slide, please, Chris. This is Amiri and um, her mother-in-law, Zahara. Um, I don't know if you guys can see this, but Amiri has a gigantic belly. She was eight and a half months pregnant. This photo was taken December of 2015, and she stopped me on the tracks. I first met her on the beaches of Greece, and I remember looking at her and going, why is a woman in your condition traveling like this? And if you go home and you look at a map between where Lesbos, Greece is and where Afghanistan is, you can have an appreciation for what this woman had to go through in December of 2015 to make it over there. And interestingly enough, like I didn't get a chance to talk to them during that day. Two days later, they've made it to Athens and Peter and I were passing out food at the park and we saw them again. And she grabbed me and she you know, hugged me and kissed me because she thought I was good luck because we were the first people she saw when she landed. And so the mother-in-law tells me that basically her, her, uh, her husband died. Her husband was killed by the Taliban. And she knew that the Taliban was going to come after the rest of her family, basically her son and her pregnant daughter-in-law. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this woman's going to deliver. And she's on a course and she's still traveling. I was so afraid for them. And then it reminded me of a story. It reminded me of my cousin Tom. And as a kid, as we were growing up, we would always tease Tom because the story about Tom was that he was born on a hillside when our families were running away. And we thought it was funny at that time, ha, 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 Tom was born on a hillside. And that story now has a whole different meaning to me because what that meant was my aunt, who had two other children at that time, who was pregnant with my cousin Tom, had to flee and had no other way of getting to safety and had to deliver my cousin Tom on a hillside. And so seeing Amiri and Zahara really drove home the kind of urgency and the kind of danger these families are in and what they're trying to flee from. And, and that was really powerful for me. Um, the next slide, please, Chris. Uh, this family is very special and very near and dear to my heart and, again, reminds me so much about myself. Um, this is Dawood Gulami and his family. Um, Dawood is from Afghanistan. And he was um, a project lead in the Kandahar airport. Um, and they were doing security there. They were actually contracted by a Canadian firm to do security work at the Kandahar airport. Well, in December 2015, they were infiltrated by 10 Taliban fighters. And Dawood and his team were able to kill all of them. And in a post-operation report, what they had learned was that the Taliban, you know, paid somebody off to infiltrate, and also they were vowing to hunt down all the Afghan families and people who were there to defend the airport. So Dawood and his family were in danger. 
And so what they ended up doing, you know, he only had enough money for himself, his wife, and his young brother to travel. His parents are still in Afghanistan. So they fled during that winter as well. And I met them last year, and we're actually in the process of working with a Canadian group to sponsor them there. And they gave birth to a little girl last June, and that family reminds me very much of my own family as well. And so, you know, they just got their immigration interview on the 21st, um, like, yeah, just a few days ago. And so we're, we're hoping that they'll be able to resettle in Canada. So th those are some of the stories of these incredible people that I met and, and how they really remind me of, of just everyday people um, whose lives just got appended because of the situation and the circumstances that they're in. So for us, I think we're looking at this huge crisis and wondering, all wondering what we can do um, and want, feeling probably a little powerless um, in the midst of it, in the face of it. So what are some things you recommend and you tell, would tell us? Yeah, um, lots and lots of things. You know, one of the big things that I learned doing this, right, is there is just a very, very fine line between inaction and action. And it actually does not take all that much to make that first step to take that action. For me, it was buying that ticket. And for me, it was doing that first call for help. And everything else just opened up new doors and it became opportunities for me to step up and do more and more. And so there are lots of things that I think we can still do here. First and foremost, you know, A, just having the awareness and knowing that all of this is still happening to be able to engage in that conversation to help humanize the situation so that it's not just happening to some other, happening someplace far away. And making you know, the, the, the space to have this conversation, to feel compassion, like what you guys have done to allow me to be here, that is a big first step, that awareness and building that awareness. Um, secondly, know that there's still a lot of people suffering. I mean, gosh, I, I, I'm floored, you know, by, based on the news that we've been seeing in this country, that there's still so much need um, for helping refugees, especially children. Um, CF Solidarity, my organization, is still supporting grassroots organizations, people that we've volunteered with, people who've been on the front lines for the last two and a half years. And we're making monthly donations to those food programs, to programs to help children. So if that's something that you can do to help, I would definitely encourage you to do that. Um, I've had many people for whom I've told this story to who want to be a little bit more involved and they want to experience this, they want to give, they want to give themselves. And so I've hooked up people, I've talked to them, interview, and make sure that they're ready for what they're going to uh, see. And I've hooked up over 50, 60 people now to go over to Greece and volunteer with the projects that we support. And so if that's something that you want to do, we can certainly talk about that um, and we can make that happen. And then finally, even here, closer to home, you know, while the numbers have dwindled in terms of the refugees that we are resettling, we are resettling some refugees. And so if you're looking to help families here, definitely, especially as a church organization, you can do so much in terms of bringing and helping integrate a family. 
And so for, for us, um, for my husband and I, we're up in Truckee right now, and we found that in northern Nevada, in Reno, they have resettled 30 refugees this year. And so Peter and I have adopted this, this family of seven who just came from Uganda, and we're helping them out, and they have four little children. And so I look forward to helping them integrate into our community and helping them be the next wave of productive Americans. Mm -hmm. In fact, you told me that it was a church in Oregon, right? Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> that adopted your family when you came. That, that's exactly right, and, and it feels so much like you know, a, a wonderful circular coming of home for me to be here and to talk to you because um, in 1979, um, the Stutzman family in Central Oregon, they live in Brownsville, um, decided that they were anti-war and as a family they talked about what they would be able to do and the refugee resettlement program was happening and the extended family decided to sponsor us. And so, you know, we, while we were living, you know, in a refugee camp in Hong Kong, what little beknownst to us, our file landed on, the, you know, the Stutzman's um, door, and, and we were a good match. And um, Chris, if we fast forward the slides, I can actually show you a picture of them uh, more. Yeah, these are some of the people that we met more. Sorry, these are just about some of the projects we support. Yeah, so I love showing this picture because um, this is my family with John and Bonnie Stutzman's family. Um, and it, it is so great because they welcome us into their homes. They're Mennonites. Um, and they were the first family I remember. They were my first extended family. And then the picture on the right is um, just Two, 10 days ago, um, Peter and I welcoming the Congolese family in Reno. And so I really love being able to be here and be in a position where I can do what the Stutzmans did for us. Thank you for telling your story, Maria. And can you say thank you to Maria? Oh, thank you, Jenny, for saying Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you, Anita, for picking us up. Thank you, yeah. and thanks for making it personal. And um, just to close this out, the other Maria is going to read a poem for us. For Syria, by 13-year-old Syrian refugee Amine Abu Karek. Syrian doves croon above my head. Their call cries in my eyes. I'm trying to design a country that will go with my poetry and not get in the way when I'm thinking, where soldiers don't walk over my face. I'm trying to design a country which will be worthy of me if I'm ever a poet and make all allowances if I burst into tears. I'm trying to design a city of love, peace, concord, and virtue, free of mess, war, wreckage, and misery. Oh, Syria, my love. I hear your moaning and the cries of the doves. I hear your screaming cry. I left your land and merciful soil and your fragrance of jasmine. My wing is broken like your wing. I am from Syria, from a land where people pick up a discarded piece of bread so that it does not get trampled on. 
from a place where a mother teaches her son not to step on an ant at the end of the day, a place where a teenager hides his cigarettes from his old brother out of respect, from a place where old ladies would water jasmine trees at dawn, from the neighbor's coffee in the morning, from after you, aunt, as you wish, uncle, with pleasure, sister, from a place which endured, which waited, which is still waiting for relief. Syria, I will not write poetry for anyone else. How can anyone teach me how to make a homeland? Heartfelt thanks, if you can. Heartiest thanks from the house sparrows, the apple trees of Syria, and yours very sincerely. <laughs>